Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, start finding Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we are learning so much about who we are in Christ. The big C, those who know Christ as Lord and Savior. And then for this little C, PCBC, uh, what does that mean for us as we gather together corporately uh, to carry out his purposes. And so we're digging through what that means to be alive in Christ. Now, for the men of the church, you've not been hearing much about this, but we have a phenomenal opportunity coming up in November. It'll be here before you know it. November the 9th, we'll be hosting Jeremy and Caleb Freeman. Many of you have probably been seeing a lot about them on social media. Jeremy was my associate pastor in Tulsa. His son was a small boy back then. And they ended up becoming the pastor at First Baptist Newcastle. His son was driving on I-35, right there at the I-35 and uh, 240 Exchange, and had a terrible collision with a semi-truck, should not have lived, walked away, and there is a miracle story that is unfolding that they've been sharing all around the nation. And he'll be with us for our men's momentum on that Thursday, November the 9th. So men, I want to challenge you not only to register online, but to use as an opportunity to bring somebody you know that needs to hear the good news of what God can do in a life surrendered to him. Well, we are learning who we are in Christ, that we are saints, that we have a faith that God has given us, that we are faithful in Christ, that we have experienced his grace and we have peace from God, which allows us to be blessed in all the heavenly places. Last week, if you weren't here, we also saw the reality that we are holy and blameless. And so here's kind of the picture we work through. As you see this first slide, that was Adam in the garden. Uh, we reminded ourselves that he first was created in the image of God and was covered in the holiness of God, the Shekinah glory. Then when he and Eve ate from the tree, they discovered that they lost that holiness. They were now blameful had blame and guilt in sin. They lost the Shekinah glory of God, but there was God to restore them, to redeem them will be our word of the day. And we see an innocent critter giving up its life that they might be covered with a picture of what God would do through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That God would restore man and he would make us holy and blameless. The enemy wants to confuse you and think, no, you do that. You've got to be more holy. You've got to be more blameless. You, you, you. And he puts you on the works treadmill. Now, we do good works, not to become holy, but because a holy God now lives in us and he is working out his holy, sanctifying process. But it's God at work who does it. And in that, through the cross and the work of the cross, we now, before him, the Bible says, we are blameless in his sight. That means without blemish or seen as spotless. Now, how is that true? Is that just words on a page? Is that just wishful thinking? Is that just a neat theological concept? Or is that our reality? The enemy would love to convince you and get you to look at the works of your hands and forget about the works of his hands, his feet, his side. He gets us to look at our holiness through our works, but the Bible was talking about our new nature, that God has created us to be a new person, and in that new nature, and under the blood of Christ, we are holy and blameless. Find this one if you can. Find the book of Jude. As I speak to the Beatles generation, it isn't, hey Jude, it's Jude, 
24. Find Jude 24, meaning there's only verses. There's just the book of Jude. It doesn't have multiple chapters. And as you find Jude in the back of your New Testament, find verse 24. I want to wrap up a few things I didn't get to get to last Sunday before we walk into this concept of the redeemed. Take a look at verse 24 of Jude. Now to him, the big C, Jesus. Not us, the big C, but the Christ, Lord God Almighty. Now to him who is able to keep who? You. The one who keeps you. The one who saved you. The one who blessed you, the one who forgave you, and the one who makes you holy and blameless, he is able to keep you from stumbling. Did you know that? I remember when I got saved, I thought, okay, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And now I better walk that straight line. I better straighten up. I better quit going where I was going and start doing what God wants me to do. And I was living on this fine line of spiritual eggshells, scared that I might step out of bounds, scared that I might step in the wrong way, trying to be good for God. What I didn't realize was he is my shepherd And that good God, that holy God, is doing a holy work in me. He is perfecting me into his image, and he is able to keep me holy and blameless, to keep me from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. I want you to understand who you are in Christ, and I want you to understand who Christ is in you. That as Christ is living in you, he is perfecting you. He is doing a work. But in Christ, I'm also, as I stand before a holy God, I am seen through the blood of Christ who makes me holy and blameless. But those of us who are holy and blameless in his sight in this earth can fall short of being holy and blameless. So let me take you to another passage, 1 John chapter 2. You say, how can we be holy and blameless and yet find that we are guilty of sin at times, that we do find blame? Well, John gives us this word in verse 1 of chapter 2, 1 John. Don't go to the gospel, John. Go to the epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children. He's speaking to those who are children of faith. They're the household of faith. He isn't just speaking to people. He's speaking to the big C as this was being delivered in a little C. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, in other words, there will be moments in a day where, yes, we are holy and blameless in the blood of Christ, but we find ourselves walking in the flesh. And if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And what he reminds them is, is that when you do something that is unholy, you don't just ignore it, you don't keep walking in it, you take it to the advocate, you take it to Jesus, you take it to the one whose blood forgives you and cleanses you, and you take it there in repentance And let God continue to work out his holy plan in your life. And so I don't want you to walk away from last Sunday saying, well, I'm holy and blameless in God's eyes so I can live however I want to under the Shekinah glory of God. No, you can't. 
Adam and Eve tried that. It didn't work. It won't work for us either. And yet the enemy loves to rob you of God's holy will for your life. Well, now knowing that we're holy and blameless in Christ, now how we stay in that, we now move back into Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 7. Let's go back there. I know you know how to find that one. It should just open up naturally by now. Find verse 7. He goes on to explain, we've only looked at a few verses of the introductory part of his letter to the Ephesians. And we have seen word after word after word that describes the depth of who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us. Now we get to verse 7. It says, for in Christ, remember we saw seven different times throughout just this first chapter, he overemphasizes that concept. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. You're no longer in your sin. You're no longer just in this world. You now are a new creature and you are in him. And in Christ, here's my next blessing. I have been redeemed. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. We sing about amazing grace, but I'm afraid we don't think much about that grace. I think we know we're saved by grace, but I'm not so sure we really reflect on what that has meant and what that has accomplished in our lives. What does it mean to have the riches of his grace, redemption? Well, Paul is famous for his big theological words. Paul, different than other writers of different epistles, uh, John and others were Peter, were fishermen, simpletons. Paul was the equivalent of a seminary professor. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And so as we read Paul's writings, he will use words that fishermen don't use. Words like justification, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. Well, as he talks about those words, I want to just unpack those real quick as it relates to salvation. And what he's doing is he's describing this big concept called grace, and he's bringing different parts of what grace is, what salvation is. First of all, uh, justification. Justification would tie into the analogy. He would use that example uh, of a courtroom. Before the holy judge of all souls... In that courtroom, we are guilty of sin. We've all committed sin. But in him, in Christ, we have an advocate. And in him, I am justified before a holy God because of his holy sacrifice. We find the word justification. He talks about propitiation. That goes back to the mercy seat found there in the tabernacle. And they understood that there was that covering of their sins that they found there as the blood and all of that was done on behalf of the people at the mercy seat. Reconciliation takes us to the battlefield. When he talks about how we're reconciled back to God, it talks about we were once enemies of God. We were on the other side fighting and waging war against the God who loves us. And we were not friends of God, we were enemies of God, but God reconciled us. He brought peace on the battlefield. But now he's going to introduce this word, redemption. It's another aspect of salvation. I needed my sins forgiven. 
I needed the mercy of God. I needed to be reconciled back to God. But those things wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for redemption. Now, what is that word dealing with? He used an example that meant more in that culture than it does in ours. He now doesn't take us to the courtroom or to the tabernacle or to the battlefield. He now takes us to the slave market. You see, in Paul's day, in this day in which this letter was written, there were millions upon millions of people who were enslaved in the world that they knew. And in that day, that if you were enslaved, there was a concept that you could be set free from your bondage. It was called redemption. Now, what does that mean to you and to me? He takes that example and he talks about how no matter your condition, no matter how you got there, some earned their way into their bondage. They were in debtor's prison. Some were born into their enslavement. Others had different reasons. They made a mistake and they accidentally killed somebody with their ox or whatever that might be, and now they were in debt. Whatever their condition, there was a way made possible to be free. A price had to be paid for your debt. I'll give you something maybe you can relate to. Let's, let's move it. It's a little bit different, but uh, one of the big challenges that has happened in the last few decades that didn't exist before, children have never been cheap. Can I get an amen from the congregation? They have become more expensive in the days and age in which we live, all right? Now, we can have a support group meeting after church if you need it, but here's the reality one of the big new things that started happening in the last decades, 46% of parents have said that their children have racked up major charges unknown to them on their credit cards online. Major purchases digitally online, mainly through gaming and through app stores, to the tune of over $500 or more before it finds their way to the statement. They are ringing up debt. They earned it. They rang it up. They can't pay for it. Oh, but mom and dad can, right? We can pay for it, right? That's easy. That's no big deal. 2020, a six-year-old boy by the name of George Johnson, I'll put his picture up on the screen, racked up charges playing an online game, Sonic. And in that online game, if you're in the app store, and obviously for most kids, the only way you get to download a game is you've got to go through mom or dad's Apple ID. You're now attached to that Apple store that stores their credit card online. And you can make purchases and upgrades as you play the game. This particular boy was just playing the game. He would get a pop-up on the screen and says, if you want to have more power, more influence in the game, you need to upgrade. And so he did. And so he clicked on upgrade, and he clicked on this, and he clicked on that. He clicked on $1.99 purchases at a time to buy multiple red rings and different things. And then the ultimate purchases, the gold rings, at $99.99, just under $100. Isn't that interesting? By the end of the month, his mom got the bill. He racked up $16,000 of upgrades. She thought she'd been hacked. She calls the credit card company. She says, these charges are not mine. They did a forensic 
audit and discover, no, those are yours. They happened at your household. You are now responsible for those charges. She found out it was her son who had no idea what he was doing. She called him back again and again, got lawyers involved, and Apple said, listen to this, quote, tough. You bought it. It's yours. You owe us $16,000. That was 80% of her annual income at the time. She had to spend the rest of that year paying off her son's debt. Her son racked up the debt that he couldn't pay, a debt, frankly, his mom couldn't pay in that moment, and they were accountable for that debt. You think about that, that pales in comparison to the debt we owe to the holy God who created us. We have charged against that holy account with our unholy purchases day after day after day after day to where we wake up now in our sin and our unholy testimonies before Christ and we are in a debt that we cannot pay. And so like their day, Paul shows the work of Christ through something they could relate to. That there was one who had the riches, there was one who had the resources, only one, who could pay off their debt. Matthew, you don't have to turn to it, Matthew 20, 28, I'll put it on the screen, says this, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, he should have, he's the King of Kings, isn't he? He's the Lord of Lords. And when he came to this earth, he should have come in all of his glory, and he should have set up shop then. He will one day, by the way. But the first time he came, not as the king of kings, but as a lowly servant. Why? He came not to be served, but to serve, listen to this, and to give his life a ransom for many. There's redemption. There's the reason that Jesus came. What we're about to celebrate at Christmas, his birth and coming to this earth, was for one purpose and one purpose only. It was for you, and it was for me. And it was to pay the price we couldn't pay, to redeem us from our sins. Do we need redemption? Oh, let me prove it. John chapter 8, verse 34 says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin becomes a slave to sin. Well, if we've all sinned, right? We all have. Come on. We all have. Then guess what it says we are outside of Christ? We are enslaved. We're enslaved to that sin, and we're enslaved to the God of this world. He is our Father. The God of this world, Satan, owned our souls through our sin. We needed redemption. We needed our sins to be paid for. So now, turn to this passage. Hold your place in Ephesians. Go to Romans 6, verses 22 and 23. This concept of redemption, uh, Brother Drew, our associate pastor, he'll be preaching this same passage in the second service, and he'll be bringing a whole different perspective. So you may want to go online this week, pull that one up for the 1105 service, and learn even more about redemption. But look at Romans 6, verse 22. Now, having been freed from sin, being freed from sin and enslaved to God. Now, 
when you were set free back in that day, whether it was debtor's prison or whatever it might be, and somebody stepped up into that, that then not only made you free, but that gave you a new relationship to the one who bought you out of that enslavement. And what Paul is reminding them is just like that it was true in the slave market, the, true was, the same was true in the spiritual realm. I once was enslaved to sin, but now I'm enslaved to Christ who set me free. Most people just want the grace, but they're not so concerned about that relationship with the one who paid the debt. In redemption, we are enslaved to God. We are uh, in relationship with him, not just because he's master and he owns us, but because he loves us. You derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we owed. Anybody willing to pay the price for that debt? That's what we owed. But Jesus was willing. For God so loved you and me, he became flesh. He died on a tree so that we could be set free from the penalty of our sin, which was death. Therefore, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That word redemption that we saw back in Ephesians. The concept we'll see throughout all of Paul's writings, this word redemption literally means to be bought back, to be repurchased. In other words, we once were gods. We saw that in the garden, Adam and Eve. We were created for God's glory. We sold our souls for our own selfish pursuits. Now we were enslaved to our sin. And God, the one who first created us, is the one who bought us back. This word in the Greek actually emphasizes the distance between the rescued person and what previously enslaved them. It has a deeper meaning and a deeper understanding that it's not only has our debt been paid off, but God has removed that as far as the east is from the west. He has distanced us, that from, he's distanced us from that forever and ever, never to return to that previous condition. That's what God did for us. That's what we get to celebrate every day in this new relationship with Christ. Colossians 1, I'll put it on the screen, says this, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. I was bankrupt in my sin. I was enslaved. I was in debt. I couldn't pay it. it takes me all the way back to my college days. We've talked about that before. Poor, broke college student. Praise God I had parents to help cover me, keep me afloat, and keep covering the bills. I was bankrupt. I had no assets. I had no income. I was just a consumer of their budget. In Christ, we're no longer bankrupt. We live in the riches of his grace. The abundance and the extravagance of his grace. It is a whole different condition. The sad part is most of us fall to the lie that we are still sinners saved by grace, not the saints living in abundant grace that God has done through his redemptive work. So what does that mean to you and me, redemption? Why does that make a difference? How did we get there? How was the price paid? Oh, it was a costly price. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 
2 Corinthians 5, 21, we're almost done. Look at it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says this. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. The one who never sinned, Jesus, without sin, the, the unblemished Lamb of God, made his way to a cross because of my sin. He became my sin, your sin, and when he became flesh, he could now die and be the substitute for the sins of the world. He could finally pay for what flesh had done, and he did it with his very own blood on the cross. So that, look at this, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As you study this word redemption throughout the New Testament, there are three Greek words that try to unpack this unfathomable concept that God so loved us. He just didn't die on a cross. He did it to redeem us, to buy us out of our eternal debt. When we look at these three different Greek words, they all bring a different emphasis. One Greek word means to be brought out of. The other one speaks of the slave market, the price that had to be paid. And when you put it all together, it talks about freedom. God redeemed you not just so you could go to heaven, but that you might live holy and blameless as well, that you might be free from the shackles and the bondage of sin. God redeemed you, not just so you could dwell in a mansion up in glory. He wanted to deliver you from the hell here on earth, which, by the way, just froze over. You know that, right? They said it would freeze over before Kansas would ever beat OU, and now you can see the temperatures outside. (laughs) Terrible weekend. Just want to give you some theology in case you needed it. Listen to this. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Titus says, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Galatians says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. God did all that because we were in debt over our heads and beyond our payment. There's one last picture that we have in Scripture that's even the better picture that most would preach on when they think about this concept. It's called the kinsman redeemer. You probably know this story if you've read the book of Ruth. Back in the Old Testament days, another way that you could experience all that you should was through this concept of the kinsman redeemer. There were times in Israel's history where they would fall into great debt. Somehow they would lose all their possessions, whether that was Uh, terrible decisions on their part, whether it was accidents that might have happened, or in the case of Naomi, her husband and her two sons had died. And in that culture, the men were the ones that provided for the family. And if you had no provision and you couldn't pay your bills, you lost the farm. That's pretty much all they had was real estate and critters. That was their economy. Naomi had lost everything everything that she had had when her husband died and her boys. And now, you know, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, she would be involved together. They would try to survive working the fields, working the lands. And they prayed for a kinsman redeemer. And they found that kinsman redeemer in Boaz. 
Boaz wasn't even supposed to be the one. He was second in line. The one who was first in line, when he realized that if he was to pay off their debts, which was his obligation to the family, would mean he also had to take care of Naomi and Ruth. He said, I'm out. Don't you love it when your family's there for you? And Boaz stepped into it. And Boaz had the resources. And Boaz had the bloodline. And Boaz purchased their debt and restored them back to all they had lost. A kinsman redeemer, there are four things that have to happen. Number one, you have to be kin. You have to be a part of the family. You had to be acceptable to all the parties involved. Just because the debt was there and just because you could pay it off, both parties had to agree and allow that debt to go. Number three, they had to be able to pay the price. They couldn't have their own debt or they couldn't pay off that debt. And number four, the kinsman redeemer had to be willing. The first one was not. Boaz was. And the beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ says this in Scripture. Though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. That doesn't mean he all of a sudden went bankrupt. No, he emptied himself of all of his holy glory in his throne. He took on flesh. He emptied himself of those things, and he came to this earth to pay the price that only he could pay. You say, I thought it had to be blood. Well, who's the one that created us? In him and through him were all things created and all things are created for. And that kinsman, the Lord Jesus Christ, did that for you and for me. How can we just take that grace and live however we want? We are saints. We are called to be the children of the King. And that was made possible by a high price that he paid, the blood of Jesus that now covers me and makes me holy and blameless in his sight. I am redeemed. Are you?